Hello, this is Mike Harbath with this week's Shoot the Moon podcast, broadcasting live and direct from uh, Revenant Rocket uh, World Headquarters in Bloomington, Minnesota. Revenant Rocket is the premier uh, growth strategist and M&A advisor for IT services companies worldwide. Today, with me are my partners, Ryan Barnett and Matt Lockhart. Gentlemen, welcome. How goes it, Mike? It's a it's a nice brisk but sunny day here in Minneapolis. So uh, good to be with you. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's a it's a great day. Things are moving along. Today we are going to talk about sort of what to expect in the eleventh hour of an M and A transaction negotiation. We certainly are in the middle of the eleventh hour on many deals right now. So. This touches close to home for us. We like to kind of relay what's going on in our world and hopefully help our audience learn a few things along the way. And um, we are going to be talking about kind of what's going on with the negotiation in the 11th hour, what to expect in the 11th hour of a deal. And when we define 11th hour, we're really talking about the final phase kind of before the definitive agreements are signed and the deal is closed. Uh, so these are sort of the weeks leading up to the final negotiation of the definitive agreements. It is always the most stressful time uh, in the transaction and the one where most deals, if they're going to come apart, come apart. And so there's lots of surprises and emotions and frustrations and you know, if you're a seller, second thoughts about why the heck you're doing this to begin with. And if you're a buyer, you're wondering if this seller will ever get their act together enough to sign the deal. So I'd love to, you know, gather some perspectives from uh, both you, Ryan, and Matt on your experiences in the 11th hour. And I'm certainly happy to to share some of mine. So, Ryan, maybe I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And to your point, uh, we often on this podcast talk about things that are hot for us. Well, right now, uh, we're working with some deals that uh, that sometimes the the end line, the goal posts uh, seem like they're uh, changing. To set this up a little bit, I'm going to back up uh, and, and make sure our audience knows when a company signs up for an M&A deal, uh, there's typically a letter of intent, and that letter of intent outlines the the goals of the deal, but it's a non-binding letter of intent. And what that means is that although the top topics of the the general deal are outlined in the letter of intent, it's really reliant upon a definitive agreement getting signed. And there are hundreds of negotiation points that end up happening between that signed letter of intent and the actual execution. So a lot of what we're talking about takes the spirit of the deal and then walks through what what really needs to get done to make sure that that deal gets completed. Uh, so that, that's the context here. Uh, there's a lot of things that come up. Maybe maybe we could start here with uh, either Matt or Mike. I'm just curious. Do you guys have any interest, just either funny or strange or the weird stories that could add a bit of color to what what happens in the, in the last in the last moments of a deal? Maybe either both ways, one that, that goes right and one that goes horribly wrong. That's a great question, Ryan. Certainly, I think, you know, emotions are running high, particularly on behalf of the seller at this phase of the negotiations. And oftentimes, um, I don't want to say oftentimes, but, you know, maybe 
there's certainly uh, sellers will ask for some stuff that we think is pretty crazy <laughs> at the last minute that kind of comes from left field. Um, and we've, when, when sellers realize that, you know, the light bulb goes on that, Hey, we're down to the last week or two. And after that, I can't get some of these owner benefit items, um, you know, either put through as expenses on through their business or whatever. There are sometimes some pretty crazy asks. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had a few of those as it relates to owners that have benefit around, you know, maybe their vehicles and, you know, their rare vehicles and they have to be accounted for somehow in the transaction or, um, you know, airplanes or boats or, you know, all kinds of goofy assets. Or what are the excluded assets? Maybe that's a better one to use as an example. We've certainly seen some very interesting excluded assets that are on the list um, uh, as it relates to either artwork or personal um, personal items. So um, it's very uh, very interesting uh, what some uh, some of these things that come up at the very last minute. I don't know, Matt, if you have any other thoughts on that, but certainly we've seen a variety of things that you would have never expected in the final weeks of a deal. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's it's all about the last pieces of information that start to come out, right? That is, you know, sometimes maybe surprising. You know, we had a, a recent one here where uh, it, it turned out there was a shared client between buyer and seller, and that caused... Uh, a little bit of uh, hand-wringing, if you will, in terms of how we were going to manage this shared client. And, uh, you know, so, so you know, I think that going back to, shoot, we've, we've been talking about due diligence previously and and the need for transparency in, in due diligence. And, and you know, it, it sort of comes out in the 11th hour if there was a lack of transparency earlier on. And so, you know, kind of going back to that principle that the more, you know, transparent and open with information early on, uh, the better. Uh, because, you know, if you can get some of that, uh, quote unquote, emotion out of the way earlier, well, that that sure is better, you know. I was as Ryan, as you were talking about the and Mike, the the sort of the emotionality of it. I was thinking about that, you know, that phrase from whatever five years ago, you know, keep calm and carry on, right? I think that's kind of a principle in the eleventh hour is keep calm and carry on. It, it the cool head prevails, uh, for sure. And one of those th issues where where it's difficult and it does uh, run high, and it, this also happens in the 11th hour because when you get near a deal and it's just about done, there's um, sometimes an obligation to tell employees and uh, and starting to bring things in from a from a seller's perspective from a very tight knit group of people who know about the deal to other people that know about a deal. And uh, sometimes if a, a deal gets done, a critical person could be holding up a deal. Uh, Mike, give any examples or any advice for after the, the cat gets out of the bag, but perhaps the ink is dry, what, you know, what could happen and what sellers should think about when announcing the, kind of this transition before integration? 
um, in the deal closing? Oh, yeah. I have lots of thoughts on that. Uh, you know, we did have a deal maybe 10 years ago that was scheduled to close on a Monday. Um, and over the weekend, one of the key employees that was supposed to go with the transaction um, called the seller or the CEO and said, I need an extra $400,000 to close on Monday. Um, needless to say, that upended the transaction. Um, the business owner fired that person uh, and the deal was off. And that was unfortunate. There was certainly some unethical actors there and their team. And um, it, it was not anticipated by the uh, owner that this particular person would do that. Um, there's other, you know, more subtle ways, though, that we've seen key staff uh, sort of hold up transactions. Um, and they kind of do that through not really cooperating with the process. We've had several examples recently where um, certain key leaders have um, that are critical path to getting diligence done or getting things done um, are holding things up. And they're doing that as a, I don't want to say they're being passive aggressive, but they're certainly um, trying to exert some influence on the deal uh, or get a piece of the deal that might be egregious or whatever, you know, might occur. And if they're not kind of getting their way, they just don't necessarily cooperate with the process fully. They do, but they're not doing it fully. And that's their way to sort of protest uh, either the deal or kind of what they're personally going to get out of the deal. And these are people that are not equity holders. These are people that are folks that work on the staff. So it's important just to reemphasize that the knowledge inside your staff of a potential transaction, if you're selling, is on a need-to-know basis, and that has to be a very short list. Um, and some of our clients have had individuals signed NDAs pursuant to a deal, uh, just to further fortify their uh, confidentiality so they're not telling other employees or whatever. But, you know, I think also important, what's very important is to understand the motivations of that individual post-transaction and, you know, make sure as a leader you're helping facilitate a win-win here uh, because you're going to need those folks. Um, you're going to need them to be on side. Um, you're going to need them to be cooperative through diligence and negotiations and to remain flexible. Uh, and if they get too much, uh, if they get too self-centered or too greedy um, because they see other, you know, a fairly substantial amount of, um, you know, uh, consideration being paid to equity owners, which sometimes happens for non-equity owners, um, that can scuttle a deal. And I think being able to manage expectations and, and roles and stuff through a transaction uh, very uh, thoughtfully and mindfully uh, keeping that employee in mind are imperative to actually get the transaction done. It is definitely a tricky time, and that roles and that can be anyone in the company. So if you have a critical path in in a at the company, there's a reason why someone's buying your your IT services firm, and oftentimes that is the people that are with it. And uh, it, there's a bit of a it's very easy to get sideways and different and try not necessarily see all angles of the deal that uh, others are dealing with. If I, if I switch gears a little bit, uh, the other thing is due diligence is really tough. And as we talked about in the last two uh, podcasts, when we dug into both buy side and seller side due diligence, 
uh, sellers get asked a thousand questions and it's it's a lot. You're emotionally invested. And Matt or Mike, you can jump in on this one. But uh, one of the last minute things we've seen is that uh, it feels like a war of attrition in which the buyer kind of has the last minute control because they're the one wire in the check. And have you seen a case or, or what kind of advice would you give if the, if the sellers in a way give up and just take a, a, a take new terms or if there's something that materially changes the deal? Um, have you been, seen that or have any advice for that situation? Well, I'll, I'll jump in, Mike. I, I, I think that um, uh, not to be self-serving, but this is where um, – you know, going back to what you say, Mike, that deals uh, oftentimes don't get done if there isn't an advisor uh, in in the mix. Um, at least one advisor, if not both advisors for the buyers as well as the sellers, because it's imperative in the last hour, uh, in the 11th hour, that everyone keeps in mind the strategic and cultural fits that have been identified uh, early on in the process. You know, that there's there's a reason that this, this deal is happening. And to continue to reinforce the value and the opportunity in two firms coming together, I think is just absolutely critical. Um, because there is last-minute negotiating, right? I mean, you're negotiating working capital uh, uh, oftentimes in the 11th hour because all of that data ha- is is sort of real-time. Um, employment agreements, that's another thing that oftentimes is uh, sort of pushed off towards the end of the process. And, and, and yeah, the buyer may feel as though, you know, they've got the upper hand in some of these last minute negotiations. But as an advisor, we're reminding the buyer uh, of the strategic imperative. And it's not, it's not about picking the berries as the deer are flying by. Right. It is. Uh, it's keeping in mind that the the real prize is the deer. Absolutely. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Well, I think you know it's about give and take, right? So I, I think generally the right deals are ones that you know shift around a little bit at the end, and everyone sort of feels like they're giving too much. You know, I often say a joke around a little bit saying that, you know, we got the right deal if everybody feels unhappy. <laughs> they didn't get everything. Um, because it is a, you know, it is a situation where there's moving parts. And when people are tired and emotionally drained, which this process does do that to you, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It is challenging. It's, again, called the most unnatural act in business for a reason. You need someone who is not emotionally attached to the deal uh, to help find a path to achieve the, the impossible, right, is probably the best way to put it. It's easy to sit on either side of a transaction and see, oh, man, how are we ever going to get there based on either this discovery, if you're a buyer and due diligence, or this development or that development as a seller, and sometimes those have to do with tax ramifications. We learned about a deal yesterday that 
was going to have a negative tax ramification for the seller kind of in the final hour, and we were able to solve that problem through negotiation. You know, there's just certainly all kinds of myriad of challenges that occur um, where we can, you know, be in a position to bring, you know, a firm can bring expertise, whether it's us or some other advisor that's knowledgeable in, in our space in M&A, um, bring their expertise and their quote-unquote cooler head slash, uh, you know, a perspective to bear in finding a path. Uh, and I think if you go into a transaction and you're in the end and you're focusing on getting the deal done, you're coming at it in the right way, right? You're coming at it with the right perspective, which is we know this will be challenging. We know there's going to be things we don't like, but the goal is to get the transaction done. And by doing that, you will find, likely find a path. And you certainly have to put a lot of smart guys in the room, though, to find the path, right? Because Remember the lawyer's role, a lot of people rely on their lawyer for this function, is to try to manage to a zero-sum game on risk. We can never mitigate all of the risk, but they're going to push and shove and try to work to definitely de-risk your deal as much as possible. And there's times when, you know, there is such a small likelihood of something occurring that the risk is acceptable to take on on behalf of either side of the deal. And, you know, our experience has been a lot of lawyers don't look at the probability of the occurrence of the whatever that might be. Uh, They keep that in mind as a secondary consideration. Their focus is just to drive the risk out of the agreement. Um, And sometimes they need to be reminded that, you know, what is the probability or likelihood of a particular thing occurring? And then we can break through. So, um, you know, I just, uh, I just think we have to remember when everyone is tired and emotions are high, that the more smart people you can put in a room to have logical dialogue about how you achieve the objective is always a good thing. I have a general question uh, for for either of you on this. Is this is really genuine? Is there things that can be done to prevent the last hour negotiation? I mean, why are things? Kind of what, what? Why do things slip to the to a close date? Well, I think that you, you know, yes, absolutely. There's there's things that can be done. You know, we're putting together a schedule within within the due diligence period, right? So the the letter of intent maps out a close date or an intended close date, and then working back from that close date, you're able to. Um, methodically lay out a schedule of the things that need to get done. You know, obviously the buyer needs to do their due diligence. The seller um, may have some of some diligence items that they want to cover as well. Um, But then, you know, giving the applicable time for that process, then you're laying out the schedule for, you know, the first draft of the definitive agreement, laying out the schedule for um, the the drafts of the employment agreements. You are, you're working as early as possible to arrange uh, the, 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 the algorithm for working capital. 
all of those things that, that, that can get done in a scheduled and predictable, uh, you know, timeline, um, you know, really sort of, uh, uh, can have a mitigation for the 11th hour turmoil, right? And, you, you know, because you want the 11th hour, you want everybody to be feeling good, right? Um, as Mike said, you know, it, within negotiating, you, you're going to feel good about some things and you're going to feel bad about other things. Well, the sooner that you can get that out of the way so that people can be positive, right, and really focusing on, those cultural and strategic benefits and, and working towards those things, you know, the better. So it's just, I think that the biggest thing that you can do is, um, is, is laying out that schedule, sticking to the schedule, um, and then, you know, allowing the advisors to take the hits <laughs> as it pertains to negotiating. Yeah. Um a little surprise, um, and Mike, maybe this is it. It seems like you were also bringing in other parts of the equation. So uh, you mentioned tax accountants. Uh, we've got lawyers that are bringing in. And uh, it, fe it feels like there's a fine balance of when to bring your, your legal in. And I know, Mike, you've got some opinions about this. But is there any, again, going back to the themes, right, what can be done to mitigate the last hour or the, the – the changes in the in the eleventh hour and uh, balancing that with the, the goal to get a deal done as uh, effectively and efficiently as possible. Yeah, I, you know, I think identifying a lot of the issues up front and then keeping a running punch list of items to resolve. Oftentimes, though, there's changes in things. I mean, I, I would say this is just a common scenario. I would say is there's this process if you're a seller is a big distraction. And oftentimes sellers allow that distraction to impact overall business performance. And when they do that and you get closer to close, it may warrant a adjustment in some way to the deal. Either uh, the consideration changes or a portion of the consideration changes when that's discovered as part of due diligence. And sometimes that's right at the end, right? Um and so, likewise, our working capital, as an example, there was payments made, and maybe the working capital harvest is not what the sellers would have expected, or did they didn't calculate it right, or there's indemnity scenarios that can't get introduced by the lawyers. So all kind of stuff that requires some sort of a some sort of a change. But the best way to mitigate a lot of those requested changes is to just try to keep a running tally of the open items and, you know, making sure you're huddling with everyone. We do think the best practice, frankly, is to have all parties, buyers, sellers, and their lawyers on the same call uh, very regularly. We understand that lawyers need to talk to their clients separately about specific issues and how they want to be, them to be handled um, so that they can communicate effectively with the other side. Um, lawyers are kind of hard-coded to want to do those meetings with their clients and then take those issues to the other counsel and back. And sometimes, just like in the game of telephone, there's things that get lost in translation. The business intent gets morphed by the legal desire to mitigate risk in the deal. And that becomes pretty challenging 
to try to uh, manage sometimes. So I think the best way to keep things on track is to have a clear running list of items that need to be addressed and to try to get a sync up with all parties as frequently as possible. Sometimes every day as you get into the final week or so before close is warranted. Um, and so, but a minimum of twice a week, uh, as you get in the last two weeks is warranted, um, for those all hands calls. And I think that helps keep things moving and helps keep everybody on the same page and frankly helps hold everyone accountable to the actions needed in order to close. That makes sense. Uh, the, the 11th hour is really a tough one for, for both sides. And uh, we really work hard to to keep the motions slow and to keep working through deals and, and remember why you got together in the first place uh, to make it a successful transaction. Uh, so, uh, it, it's you know, nothing's going to be perfect, but keeping a clear and optimistic mind can ensure that no matter what the outcome uh, you've got, it's going to uh, outcome within the details. You still have the best decision for your company and your shareholders and, and ultimately uh, the marketplace. So, Mike, Matt, that's the last questions I've got for you. I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. All right. Matt, I don't know if you have any thoughts in closing before we um, wrap it up. Well, I don't. I think it may be time to tie a ribbon on it. There you go. We'll tie a ribbon on it for this week um, and for this week's Shoot the Moon podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, make it a great week. Take care.